This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Happy holidays and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. If you didn't already know, my name is Dustin Smith and I will be your host today. We have an exciting episode for you this week, episode 256, entitled, How Proverbs Chapter 1 Influenced New Testament Christology. This is a continuation of our current series in which we are looking at the most prominent passages within the Hebrew Bible, that's the Old Testament, that have shaped and formed the understanding of what the Messiah would look like, how he would act, what his role would be, and of course what his relationship would be to the God of Israel. And these expectations are of course found within the words and passages of the New Testament. So this week we are finally moving past the massive behemoth that is the book of Psalms and we're moving to Proverbs. Now, there's a little bit of timid feeling when it comes to looking at the Messiah and Proverbs, especially for biblical Unitarians, because Proverbs has been one of those books that has been argued and suggested proves that the Messiah consciously pre-existed his birth, which of course brings the question of the Messiah's true humanity into question. If someone consciously exists before becoming a human, then that humanity is not the original person. That's just something that's added on to a being that already is consciously in existence. But I'm going to demonstrate today that that is not actually the correct reading of Proverbs and that biblical Unitarians should enjoy reading Proverbs because it certainly helped to shape and influence the portrayals of Jesus Christ within the New Testament. At least that is part of my goal today, is to demonstrate what I think are the facts that lead to that conclusion. You, of course, can be the judge of those facts for yourself. So here are some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, who or what is the wisdom of God as she is presented in the book of Proverbs? We'll have to define what God's wisdom actually is. Second question, what does it mean that wisdom is portrayed as talking in public, prophesying, and offering life to those who follow her instructions? And lastly, in what ways did the writers of the New Testament portray Jesus Christ based upon the influence of Proverbs chapter 1. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first one today is a close look at the figure of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1. So what we're going to do is we'll break Proverbs 1 into two sections, kind of an opening section, which is verses 2 through 7, and then the major, most important wisdom section, which is chapter 1, verses 20 through the end of the chapter. So the first part is chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. To know wisdom and instruction, 
to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's Proverbs 1, verses 2 through 7. And so this is an introduction to this particular section. Really, Proverbs is a variety of chapters, but it's compiled over a long period of time. And Proverbs 1 through 9, those first nine chapters, really is a significant section that can be discernible within the book. So here is just kind of an introduction to Proverbs 1 through 9, not necessarily Proverbs as a whole. And one of the things that we notice here is that wisdom is described in this introduction at the beginning and at the end. It kind of bookmarks this opening passage. And what we can see is that wisdom is basically a synonym for God's instruction. We can see that in verse 2. Knowing wisdom and instruction, it's defined by the parallelism as the sayings of understanding. These are instructions in wise behavior, according to verse 3. And we can see the same in the closing verse, in verse 7. The wisdom and instruction are the things that fools despise. Wisdom is just the instruction of God. And it seems to be the paralleled phrase in verse 7, to the fear of Yahweh. Fearing Yahweh, of course, is understood as instruction and wisdom. So what is the wisdom of God? Well, it seems to be God's instruction, God's commands, God's wise, behavioured, inspired statements, the instruction in wise behavior, the sayings of understanding. That much is clear. It seems pretty obvious. The statements that a wise God makes and utters are surely statements that are wisdom. They are wisdom statements. Now, when we move down to the main section, there is a major wisdom passage in chapter 1 starting in verse 20, but going all the way down to verse 33, the end of the chapter, we can see that this wisdom, the instruction and the wise sayings of God, becomes personified. Personification is the giving of personality to a thing or an object or a concept. And so the wise instructions of God become personified to the point to where wisdom actually is talking and walking and speaking to other people and prophesying and located in particular places and offering these good comments, but also uttering these statements of warning and judgment. We have to understand that Proverbs begins by defining wisdom as the wise instructions of understanding that God wants people to take to heart. And then 
this concept gets personified to where wisdom functions as a personified female figure. It would be a mistake, therefore, to interpret wisdom as an actual woman, an actual female figure, an actual woman that is speaking as a prophetess to all of these people at the end of Proverbs chapter 1. That is to misunderstand the most basic concept of personification. So let's read this passage. Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. And then wisdom speaks. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of Yahweh. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. That's Proverbs chapter 1 verses 20 through 33. And so there are a lot of really, really fascinating things that are said here about personified wisdom. And many scholars, when you read the commentaries on the book of Proverbs, or if you get a Bible dictionary and you look up the concept of wisdom in Proverbs, or you look up Proverbs and the way in which wisdom is portrayed in the book of Proverbs, you will see this figure of Proverbs be described in light of her personification. And some writers will call her lady wisdom. Some writers will call her woman wisdom. This is to indicate, of course, that Proverbs is personifying this figure as a female, as a woman. And this is because the Hebrew noun for wisdom, chokmah, is a grammatically feminine noun. And so to personify a feminine noun, you, of course, make it into a female. It's like you would take the word, the logos, you would personify that as a male figure, Mr. Logos. But wisdom, of course, is a female figure. Same thing in Greek, to where wisdom, Sophia, is also personified as a female figure. But what are the interesting things that we can see when God is taking his wisdom, his wise instruction, and he is personifying as a female figure, no doubt to 
get the attention of the male readers, as we can see from the opening verses of the book of Proverbs, enticing the male readers. You do that by saying that you need God's wisdom, God's wise instruction. So let's personify it as a alluring female figure. What can we learn from this particular passage? Well, what stands out to me is that wisdom is, first of all, standing out there in the public. She's not often some sort of private place. She's not secretly in some sort of hidden temple. She's not up there in heaven to where nobody can find her. She's not out in some sort of distant place on the top of some sort of mountain. She is in the public. She is accessible. She is out there for everybody to see. She is in the streets, in the square, at the head of the streets, and at the entrance of the gates of the city. And so she's there. She's public. She's accessible. Everyone is going to see her. And even at the entrance of the gates indicates that for people that are going in and out of the city, she is right there at the door, right there at the gate. And what does she do? She is not just speaking. She is shouting. She is lifting her voice. She is crying out. She is uttering her saying. So she is communicating in a way that indicates that her words are important, they're vital, and they need to be shouted from the rooftops. And then we can see that she is given the first person treatment. She speaks in the first person. She says, how long will you love being simple-minded? And she speaks this to the naive and the scoffers, the fools who hate knowledge. And then we can see that she is calling for people to repent in verse 23. Turn to my reproof. And in doing so, she is calling people to not to return to her per se, but to turn to God, to turn to the Lord. You can see this in verse 29, that the people should have chosen the fear of Yahweh. She's functioning in a way to call these people who are naive, they're foolish, they're scoffers, and they are to turn, they are to repent, they're to reorient themselves towards the God of Israel. But what's interesting here is that she seems to be functioning as a prophet, particularly a prophetess. She's calling people to repentance. She is rebuking people for failing to listen to her. They have neglected her counsel. They don't want her reproof. And because she calls out and she is rejected, she is refused, and the people don't pay her retention, then we have what seems to be a very common thing within the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament, which is the promise of judgment upon those who refuse to listen. Because they have neglected the words of wisdom, she's going to laugh at their calamity. She's going to mock when their dread comes. So there's the threat of judgment. They will have calamity. The dread is going to come. And in fact, it's going to come like a storm, like a whirlwind. It's going to be distress and anguish, and it's going to come upon those people. Now, at that time, when the judgment has actually come out, they will call upon wisdom, but wisdom is not going to answer. They will diligently seek wisdom, but they're not going to find her. 
And this is interesting because at the beginning, wisdom is out there in the public. She's open. She's accessible. However, there is a sense to where if she offers her words and she is rejected and judgment comes upon those who reject her, if at that time they choose to reach out to wisdom, it's too late. She is no longer accessible. She's no longer out there in the public, in the streets. She is quite clear that she will not answer and they will not be able to find her. And why is this the case? It's pretty clear because they hated knowledge. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. Fearing the Lord, of course, is not this dread. It is the knowledge and understanding the wise instructions, the instructions in wise living. And this, of course, is described by wisdom as her counsel, her reproof. And these people who have rejected her, the prophetess wisdom, says that they're going to eat the fruit of their own way and they will die. The waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of the fools will destroy them. There is the promise of death and destruction for those who do not listen to the words of wisdom. That's the negative side of wisdom. What are the positive sides of her words? For those who do actually listen to her, in verse 23, those who repent and turn at her words of reproof, she will pour out her spirit upon them. In fact, she will make her words known to them. And this is very interesting, that wisdom, the wisdom of God, is closely related to God's spirit. There's a close relation. They're not equated. They're not meant to be the same thing. They're not identical, but they're closely related. Wisdom is able to pour out God's spirit. And another way that this is understood in light of the parallelism is that the words of wisdom are being made known unto the person who has repented. So there's a relationship between wisdom and spirit and words. And of course, if this is God's wisdom, his wise interaction with creation, it's closely related with God's spirit, which is the personal and powerful interaction of God extended throughout his creation. And of course, God's words, his utterances, his statements, his commands. There's a close relation with all of those particular points. And for those who do repent, there is a promise of life and security and ease from the dread of evil. That's the last word. The last word is not a word of rebuke and judgment. The final word is the promise of security and life and ease for those who actually listen to wisdom. It's very important. Wisdom is a figure who needs to be heeded. She is a prophet to whom people need to lend their ear. They need to listen to her. And listening, of course, implies the intent to obey. Now, with all that in mind, let's turn to the New Testament and see what we can draw from this particular passage to kind of set this picture of ways in which the New Testament authors have portrayed the man Jesus Christ in light of the influence of 
Proverbs chapter 1. So this is our second point, the influence of Proverbs 1 on the New Testament writers. And I came up with 10 particular points. Now, you might find these persuasive. You might find some of them more persuasive than others. But each of these 10 points, I think, do demonstrate influence from Proverbs 1 onto the portrayals of Jesus in the New Testament. But I think the more persuasive argument will be once you're able to see the upcoming episodes in which we look at how Proverbs chapter 3 influences New Testament writers, Proverbs chapter 8, and Proverbs chapter 9. And so we have all of these chapters demonstrating the influence of this personified figure wisdom upon the New Testament authors. So this, of course, is just one particular chapter among many. So the first thing that we can see is that Jesus is someone who operates in public places. We saw the introduction of wisdom in the primary wisdom passage in Proverbs 1, 20 through 33, is that she ministers in public places. And the New Testament's pretty clear. Jesus does most of his important teaching in public places. The Gospel of John is quite clear to indicate all of the public places in which Jesus will do his teachings and his ministry, where he will preach the gospel and have these long dialogues and discourses with other people, but they are in public. And the New Testament is quite clear to indicate that Jesus was a public figure who taught in the public, and people had opinions of him because he was a figure that was out in the open. He wasn't someone that was always ministering to people, off in a corner, in dark places. He wasn't some hidden figure by night. He wasn't one of these Messiah figures, or at least a messianic pretender, that was off in the darkness, gathering an army. No, Jesus was a public figure. And so the influence that I can see is that the New Testament writers will constantly portray Jesus ministering in public because wisdom is out there in the public. The second thing is that Wisdom being a figure that is there at the door and at the gate has certainly influenced the author of the Gospel of John in which Jesus says that he is the door of the sheep. The sheep, of course, are the ones that listen to Jesus, but here the person who is at the door is calling for people to listen unto her. The door and the gate basically function as the same thing. And later in Proverbs, it's going to be clear that wisdom is always sitting there at the gates calling for people to listen unto her. And so the position of wisdom at the gates and at the door seems to have influenced at least that particular saying in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. Third, which is seemingly the most obvious one, is that Jesus is a prophet. He is a prophetic figure, and wisdom is almost certainly intended to be understood as a prophetic figure in Proverbs chapter 1. A prophetic figure is a figure that is a spokesperson for the God of Israel that speaks the words of God and functions as this intermediary between the people and God. And as the spokesperson who represents God, that person will speak on God's behalf, has God's authority, and... God's empowerment to even perform miracles and 
works of wonder. The fourth point is that Jesus is someone who speaks condemnation for those who refuse to listen. And that's something that Lady Wisdom does. Jesus, as a prophetic figure, is condemning people that do not listen to him. As Jesus preaches the kingdom of God and the judgment of the kingdom of God, there is, of course, condemnation for those who don't turn at his reproof. And that's exactly what Wisdom did. And these threats, of course, lead to judgment. That's the fifth point. Prophetic threats that lead to judgment. Those who do not listen are going to die. They will be killed. And Jesus talks about this on occasion, but he does do it as part of his prophetic ministry. Those who do not accept his message of the kingdom are going to face judgment. They're going to be cut off. And yet this is something that Lady Wisdom was doing hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Number six is that there is a close relationship with the Spirit. Now, Lady Wisdom says that I will pour out my Spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus is telling his disciples, this is in chapters 14 and 16 primarily, but he says, I'm going to go away, but... I'm not going to leave you as orphans and the spirit of truth is going to come and the spirit of truth is going to effectively function as Jesus' representative while Jesus is in heaven. So the Gospel of John doesn't end with the ascension of Jesus. The ministry of the Gospel of John continues because after Jesus ascended, he sends the spirit and the spirit functions as Jesus in a sense for the life of the church. And so the portrayal of the Spirit has been confusing for, to a lot of biblical Unitarians because they see the Spirit sounding like Jesus, acting like Jesus, maybe even being personified in a way that sounds and looks like Jesus. But it's because there was an overlap between God's wisdom and the Spirit. And so here we can see in the Gospel of John, Jesus, the embodiment of God's wisdom, is now being closely related to God's Spirit. I think that's very interesting. I think there's more work that could be done on that particular point. The seventh point is that Jesus sometimes is inaccessible. We saw that although wisdom is public and an accessible figure and out there in the marketplaces and in the streets, when she is rejected and people don't want to listen to her message, then they're not going to be able to find her. And in fact, the line in Proverbs where it says that they will call on me and I will not answer, they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, has an exact parallel in the Gospel of John. Jesus quotes that particular passage and speaks it verbatim indicating that Jesus, of course, saw himself as wisdom's embodiment. But the point there is that Jesus, at times, is inaccessible. And you can see this. Jesus is the one who escapes through the crowds when people try to seize him, when people pick up stones and they try to attack him. Jesus runs away. Jesus escapes. Jesus moves out of their presence. So although... The gospel writers do want to portray Jesus as a public figure that's out in the open. He's accessible whenever 
He is rejected when people don't want to listen to him. And when people try to seize him and they try to attack him, he becomes inaccessible, just like we could see earlier in Proverbs chapter 1. And the inaccessibility of Jesus is an interesting theme, and you can also see that in the Gospel of John if you study all of those instances. It's very interesting. It's not just the fact that Jesus is inaccessible at times. It's the fact that he's inaccessible at the particular moments in which his words are rejected, just as we see in Proverbs chapter 1. The eighth point of connection is that Jesus points people to God while also functioning as God's agent. So Jesus, of course, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. And of course, as the door of the sheep, he functions there as the way for the sheep to ultimately get to God. So in a variety of titles that Jesus claims for himself, he sees himself as kind of this focal point, the mediator almost, as the way to get to the God of Israel. But we already saw this with Lady Wisdom. Because Lady Wisdom said that the people that do not choose the fear of Yahweh are not actually accepting her counsel. They are spurning her reproof. So Wisdom is pointing people to Yahweh. She wants people to fear Yahweh, to possess the knowledge of Yahweh, to turn at Yahweh's words. But as Yahweh's agent and Yahweh's representative, Lady Wisdom can say, that these are the words of her counsel, the words of her reproof. And Jesus, of course, is functioning as the agent of God, the embodiment of God's words, and as the ultimate prophet of God, as the Messiah could function and act like. Jesus is able to speak these words and point people to God while also talking about his own words. Not that the sender and the agent are ever confused, but they function exactly as intended. The agent speaks on behalf of the one who commissioned the agent and points people towards the importance of the one who sent him without actually confusing the two. And yet, the agent is able to speak as if he was the one who sent and commissioned him. And so, Jesus, while pointing people towards God, also functions as God's agent, just as Lady Wisdom did. The ninth thing is that Jesus, of course, promises life and security. He promises eternal life, life of the age to come, both as a not-yet-achieved resurrection promise, a bodily resurrection, but also as a promise of new life in the present, which is the promise of salvation, deliverance, and covenant membership. In the Gospel of John, you could see both of these things. You could see that eternal life is something that could be possessed and held onto in the present, but also something that is promised for the future, which is much more definitive. It is being raised from the dead. It is bodily resurrection, a resurrection unto life and immortality. And this, of course, is because Lady Wisdom has also promised life and security specifically to those who listen to her. And those who listen to Jesus, meaning they listen to his words and they obey them, will also receive security and life. Life in the present, but also eternal life, resurrection life in the future. And the tenth and final point is, I think, the most important, is that Jesus embodies wisdom. 
He is the embodiment of personified wisdom. Dare I say, Jesus is the incarnation of God's wisdom. He is wisdom made flesh. Wisdom embodied herself into Jesus, and Jesus walks around continuing to speak and function as the wisdom of God. We can see Jesus being portrayed as God's wisdom explicitly in Matthew, Luke, the Gospel of John, 1 Corinthians, maybe Galatians, definitely Colossians, definitely Hebrews, definitely 1 John. A lot of these major writers of the New Testament are portraying the man Jesus Christ as wisdom's embodiment, taking language, words, and statements and descriptions formerly used of God's wisdom and now using them to describe the man Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom. And if wisdom became flesh in Jesus, and this of course means that Jesus does indeed possess a pre-existence. Jesus pre-existed as wisdom. However, pre-existence doesn't just mean one thing. Pre-existence could mean conscious pre-existence or it could mean notional pre-existence, which is pre-existence in God's mind and plans and purposes. So which of the two best describes wisdom? Well, wisdom in the book of Proverbs and in other places in the Old Testament in which wisdom is personified is just that, a personification. And a personification, I have to point this out strongly, a personification is not the same thing as a conscious person. To say that Jesus is the embodiment of personified wisdom is not to attribute conscious, literal preexistence to Jesus. It's said that Jesus preexisted as God's personification. And this does not mean that Jesus consciously preexisted any moment prior to his birth. He is the embodiment, the locus of God's wise interaction, God's wisdom, God's wise instructions for the world today. If you want the wisdom of God right now, you don't go read in the book of Proverbs. You don't go read in Job chapter 28. You look at the man Jesus Christ, and that's where you're going to find God's wisdom right now. So Jesus is the embodiment of personified wisdom. I do think that this indicates that Jesus preexisted as God's wisdom, but since wisdom is not a conscious person, it is not a literal preexistence, a conscious preexistence. Rather, it is the preexistence of a personification, which is something in God's purposes, God's mind, God's plans, it is a preexistence of God's wise statements, which of course is not conscious and literal. So there you have 10 different ways in which the New Testament authors have portrayed Jesus in light of just wisdom's portrayal in Proverbs chapter 1. And there's much more to note when we get to our following episodes in which we will see the New Testament writers portray Jesus in light of Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 8, and Proverbs chapter 9. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we look at Proverbs chapter 3 and the various ways it has influenced the writers of the New Testament in their portrayal of the human being, Jesus Christ. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, 
by giving us an honest review on iTunes and by sharing your favorite episode with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation to help keep the Biblical Unitarian Podcast on the air, you can check out the episode description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith. So until next time, please take care. Happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, and Merry Christmas.